Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or of course Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes and you're very welcome to a special show this week all about our digital media. You see, from photographs to MP3s, the way we engage with media formats has changed our relationship with content from how it's stored to how it's controlled. So What were the major milestones that took us from keeping photo albums in our wardrobes to going to digital galleries or going from vinyl records to Spotify subscriptions? Armando Fox is Professor in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science and Faculty Advisor for Digital Learning Strategy at UC Berkeley Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department. He sat down with Niall Kitson to discuss the technology and the politics of digital formats. When I sat down to think about what we talk about today, uh, the idea of formats sort of came to mind to me because when it comes to our experience of media today, whether it be music or video, um, there's sort of a technological aspect to it, but there's also a social aspect to it that the more we lean towards convenience and how we see things, there's also an ownership element to it as well. So... To you, how do you think the two have grown up? Has it been a case of the better the format, the less interested we are in owning it? Or is there still that market out there where somebody wants to go out and, you know, their first impulse is to buy the CD, buy the record now, because that that seems to be the market that's exploding. Um, And this is kind of, we're seeing a, a divergence between ownership and experience. Would you agree with that? Uh, I think that's a super interesting observation, Niall. And in fact, I would maybe be a bit nuanced. And rather than saying ownership versus experience, I think what many of us used to think of as ownership, uh, I own a CD, I own a a record, uh, really is just a separate, a different kind of control over an experience. Uh, Because, you know, as we know, certainly in, in Europe and the United States, there are copyright laws around the material. You know, when I, when I buy, for example, a U2 album, I don't own anything other than the right to play that album uh, personally on my player in my home whenever I want. Uh, so in that sense, we never really owned the music, but I think the kind of control we had over the experience has been deeply affected by the media format evolution. And I think it sort of cuts both ways. I think, you know, for many of us, certainly for me, uh, I don't, want to uh, live in a world where I no longer have the ability to very conveniently say, I would really like to listen to, to Beethoven's Eroica. And uh, assuming I'm somewhere near an internet connection, I can more or less instantly listen to more or less anything that's ever been recorded. That's really astonishing. And I think it's sort of not to be taken lightly. On the other hand, compared to the experience in which I previously would have owned a copy, a recording of that piece, which is less convenient because if I didn't own it, I would have to go to the store and buy it. And then I would come home and hopefully my player is working. But at the same time, I've now handed over control of parts of the experience today to other entities. For example, if I'm listening on Spotify, uh, I might not have access to a good enough internet connection. So even though I'm a subscriber, maybe I can't listen. Maybe Spotify thinks my account is not current. Maybe we have a billing dispute and they think that I'm not up to date. And so they forbid me to listen. 
maybe I'm traveling in a part of the world where the copyright around the piece that I want to listen to is different than the country in which I bought it. And so Spotify or whoever decides that even though I'm a subscriber in good standing and so on, they won't allow me to listen to that piece of material in that place at that time. And in, but besides all of that, even when I do listen to it, they're very clearly tracking when I listen to it, how often I listen to it, how much of the piece I listen to every time. Uh, there are a number of things they may or may not choose to do with that information, but the point is that they have it. And I'm not saying that one format is better or worse than another, but I think there are, uh, it's changed the nature of which parts of the experience the listener controls or the viewer and which parts of the experience are necessarily mediated by another entity. And so for the first time, we really should be thinking about what is our relationship as the, the consumer or the listener to that entity. You know, when we bought a record, we didn't think too deeply about our relationship to Columbia Records or Verve Records. They, they provided a product and we bought it and then we used it. Uh, but now the connection between the music listener and, and the entity that mediates distribution of that music uh, is quite different. That's become much more personal. And I wonder whether listeners think about that perhaps as often as they should. And the metrics we're engaging with now are so much more detailed than they used to be. I mean, in times past, you would look at sales and go, okay, right, that's that's kind of what we're interested in. Now you're like, okay, uh, people are hanging on to the first five seconds of a song or people have taken a snippet and they're using it on TikTok. Um, and this is kind of the uh, the metrics people are looking at on streaming services. You know, how long are people sticking around to listen to a song? Uh, is it being added to a playlist? So uh, even though... We uh, might be selling things or streaming things. The amount of information that people are gleaning from it, that companies are gleaning from it, is so much more detailed uh, than it was before. Absolutely. And uh, there are some who have called, I think uh, Shoshana Zuboff is probably the most prominent scholar who has referred to this as the surveillance economy. Uh, now, that term is a little more you know, Orwellian maybe than today's conversation would suggest. But uh, you know, if we remember many, many years ago when Netflix appeared, or I should say when Netflix was ultimately able to, the move, to move to the model when Netflix was ultimately able to move to the model that they had intended in the first place, which was online distribution of video. Some people might not be old enough to remember that Netflix began, at least uh, in North America, as a service that would mail physical DVDs to your home and then you'd have to return them. But once Netflix moved to the video distribution over the internet model, really, if you were ahead of the game, the way you thought of Netflix was not this is a video distribution company, you thought uh, this is a marketing data aggregation company that happens to use video as the means by which they're going to collect data about their viewers. So in a very, and a lot of the early uh, free to play mobile phone games were very much the same thing. Uh, the game itself was nominally free, but it really wasn't because what you're, the currency in which you were paying in some sense was the very detailed behavior of what happens to you as you're playing the game and your other interactions and so forth. And that's very valuable data, as we know, from you know, the social media companies, the media distribution companies. So uh, again, none of this is to say that, uh, that these things should be banned, but I think it is worth, you know, as someone who uses these services, to ask yourself, what, do I know what's being collected about me? Do I know what information about myself I'm giving up? in order to, in exchange, have the privilege of watching a movie whenever I wish or listening to any song that's ever been recorded whenever I wish. And everybody has to make that decision for themselves. I just wish that more people thought a bit more deeply about it. 
So let's look at some of the technical signposts that got us from from there to here. Uh, I mean, we're we're a hundred years into sort of consumer formats, I suppose, and uh, you use, use I suppose start with thirty five millimeter film and the advent of the camera. Um, how do you how do you feel that that was sort of a, a, a game changer? in terms of putting things into people's homes. I, I, I suppose if you, if you look at the Victorian experience, they're absolutely mad for accumulating uh, items of, of pretty much any sort. Um, and I suppose photos just sort of fit into that milieu pretty well. Well, although I'm not an expert on the history of photography, uh, I can certainly say that I'm very interested in any technological development that has enabled more people to participate in an experience than previously. Sometimes it's by lowering the cost of the experience. Sometimes it's by uh, removing some of the complexity that barred ordinary non-expert people. You know, in the case of photography, before the advent of, uh, of chemical film, let's, you know, thinking back to sort of still film cameras, photo cameras, uh, before the advent of that kind of film, there were daguerreotypes, but, you know, the photographers had to carry around these heavy plates and they had to carry around a, a suitcase of toxic chemicals. And especially, you know, basically they had to be their own developers as well as photographers. The invention of film allowed the easy part, which is to point a camera and snap a photo to be separated from the complex part, which is developing the film into a usable print. And so all of a sudden people who were not uh, expert photographers who knew nothing about photo development were able to participate in photo taking. So I think if we look at, you know, let's go beyond that to start looking at film and video formats. Uh, the miniaturization of that format and the invention of the portable projector eventually took us to the handheld projector where you could film home movies on eight millimeter. And again, the, the complex part, the development could be uh, in some sense outsourced. Um, when VHS came along, not only did it allow us to time shift our TV, which is actually the reason it was invented, although it ended up being much more about playing pre-recorded movies, but because it was such an inexpensive medium and easy to work with, it enabled this entirely new audience of independent filmmakers who could not have afforded to have professional film cameras and, and all of the corresponding equipment could now point a VHS camcorder and start making independent movies. Uh, and not only the, the technology for creating the product in the case of VHS, but the way the product was disseminated, you know, to, to continue with VHS as an example, it was such a convenient format to distribute. Uh, it's, you know, it's not really much larger than distributing a couple of cassettes. So it was easy to distribute to retail stores. Uh, Blockbuster Video in the U.S. famously got to the point where uh, they really had it down to a science. They could uh, drive a large truck up to a storefront that was an empty retail location and within 24 hours, they could be up and operating. Within 24 hours, they could be up and operating. So there's sort of a, there was a new market for creators. There's a new market uh, because of the distribution mechanism, uh, sort of a larger public that, that could be a market for those goods. And if we now follow that through to some of the digital formats that have made things like streaming video and streaming audio possible, um, it's easy to lose sight of how many technical ingredients had to sort of come together to make that happen. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, computers really up until the late 1970s or early 1980s were the province of laboratories and universities and businesses. The idea of the personal computer didn't happen until the late 1970s. And it would take a good deal of time after that through the, the mass commercialization that ultimately made PCs cheaper. The cheaper they became, the more people had them. The more people had them, the more kinds of new 
creative activities those people could pursue, including the design of better PCs. So we got to a point where, you know, I, I think the, the aphorism is we're carrying more computing in our pocket and our mobile phone than anything that was used to reach the moon in 1969. Um, and it's sort of a glib statement, but I, I think uh, the role it plays in our conversation is that the, the idea that an, a fundamentally analog medium like photos or like film or like music can be represented digitally. And once you can represent something digitally, it can be manipulated by a computer. It can be stored on generic digital media um, and it can be transmitted over long distances. We know we don't have to transmit a VHS cartridge. We just transmit a digital representation of what its contents would have been. But to get to that point, computers had to be cheap enough that the act of uh, decompressing that stored signal, because uh, it's only because of things like MP3 and MPEG that we can transmit things over the internet at streaming speeds, really. Right? The, the amazing amount of compression that takes advantage of psychoacoustics and takes quite a fair bit of heavy lifting of computation, starting from the raw video to get it to that compressed format where it's small enough to ship over and stream it in real time. And at the other end, uh, when you're watching it, computing has to be cheap enough that you can decode that video. Screen technology has to be cheap enough that you can throw that video up on a screen and watch it. And the cost of connecting to this global network infrastructure has to be low enough that you take for granted in any major inhabited area in the world, you can pull out your phone and watch a video. So it's really remarkable convergence of computing technology, storage technology, and communication technology. And they sort of didn't really all come together until the mid 2000s. Um, so it's enabled this very new kind of economy where we can watch anything we want. We can listen to anything we want, anywhere that we want on devices that are so inexpensive. Many of them replace us every three or four years. But on the other hand, again, it has changed the way that our access to that content is mediated. Um, and by the way, even if the, the sort of what I'll call the surveillance ramifications of that don't really bother you, there is also, I think, this more sobering, you know, if we take the long view and ask, uh, assuming we don't extinguish ourselves as a species in the next few centuries, what will future anthropologists conclude if they find, you know, if they find an old record album or if they find an old VHS tape or if they find uh, an old piece of unexposed film, there's a, there's a fundamentally analog media. Uh, you can sort of examine them uh, under a, just an optical microscope, and it's very clear that the record was created to record some sort of an analog signal. If you find a USB key or a floppy disk that has some video or audio files stored on it, what do you do? Because getting to the underlying content, the video or audio stream, relies on knowing the video format, knowing the algorithm required to decompress it, knowing the conventions for what size screen it's supposed to be rendered on. Uh, there's all of this sort of technological stack living underneath it that's invisible to us when we're consuming the media, but without which the media might as well not exist. So, you know, there's a reason that famous photographs and old movies have, have survived is that the physical media uh, have survived and it's at least possible to reconstruct. You know, we don't have the same kind of film projectors today as we did, let's say, in the 1920s. But we have the know-how to sort of recognize, oh, this was designed to be played on this type of device. We can find a way to, in some, in some sense, reproduce that experience. It's not clear that that's going to be possible in the far future. A lot of us are old enough to remember. I still have floppy disks at home from when I first was introduced to computing. And it's getting more and more difficult to find equipment that can read any of the content on those disks. 
So of course, once I read it, I now use the internet to send that content to a real computer. I store it in a modern file and I breathe a sigh of relief thinking that, you know, in another 10 or 20 years, I'm going to have the same problem all over again. So the one of the other costs of media convenience, if you will, is that ironically, media has become more ephemeral. We have to actually take steps if we want to make sure that it will be preserved by default. Let's look at the argument for uh, quality, because as you say, going back to 35 millimeter film, we are now seeing 4K upscaling uh, of original negatives. Um, Wings of Desire, for example, is one that had a, a very recent re-release last year. Uh, Blade uh, also went through a, a, a similar process. So we looked to 35 millimeter as a benchmark in the 80s. We looked to CD as a benchmark. Are people as interested in these benchmarks, seeing as we are moving towards a more ephemeral economy? That's a great question. And I think uh, this is one of those highly charged religious arguments. And no matter what I say, I'm sure I'm going to anger someone. So here we go. Um, I remember when CDs were first introduced as uh, essentially an alternative to cassettes and record albums. And there were a lot of arguments back and forth among audiophiles and purists about quality and this and that. But, you know, if you take a step back, what is a, a music recording in some sense arose as a stand-in for going to a live music performance. Uh, you know, I, I had the pleasure of going to the Cobblestone last night and there were live musicians performing there. I could record that and take it home and listen to it, but it would be a different experience, not just because of the milieu and, you know, the, the experience of being there socially, but the way the sound reaches your ears, the way that uh, the room interacts with the sound, you can't really capture that on a recording in a way that would be quote unquote, exactly like, being there live. So let's begin by acknowledging that when we listen to a piece of music or when we watch a video, no matter how high the alleged quality is, it's not the same as being there. And that's fine. It's not supposed to be the same as being there. But in that regard, a high quality cassette and a high quality CD and a high quality music audio stream are sort of three different forms of not quite being there. And uh, I think, as you mentioned, you know, for a lot of people, what matters is whether the experience is good enough. Uh, when MP3 was developed as a format, which was, it was quite revolutionary. If you sort of look at the, the intellectual heft behind MP3, it's an extremely impressive accomplishment of engineering that combines computing and signal processing and psychoacoustics and all kinds of other things. And again, there were a lot of uh, angels dancing on the head of a pin argument about whether you could really hear the difference between a compressed MP3 version of a file versus the, the straight unredacted or uncompressed version of the same file. For most, for the vast majority of people, it missed the point because not only uh, are you already in some sense making a compromise by choosing to capture a two-channel reproduction. And by the way, two channels because we have two ears, right? But in reality, in a live setting, there are many other factors that influence the way that the different parts of that signal uh, reach your ears and are interpreted by your brain. But also when we play that back, you know, most people are going to be playing this back on consumer equipment that introduces more loss and compromise every step of the way. The signal has to be decoded to analog, which is an imperfect process. It has to be amplified so that it can be fed to your headphones or to your, your room speakers, which is an imperfect process. And of course, the speakers themselves are mechanical reproducers that at some point you have to make the air vibrate near your ears in order to hear the sound. And speakers are very imperfect at doing that. So for most people, these arguments really kind of pale in comparison to the fact that they can much more readily get to the music or the video that they want. 
And I think as you look at, you know, we've, we've talked about VHS and 35 millimeter film. Really, the, the big effect of those has been to increase access, not only to more listeners, but also, as I said before, in many ways to more creators, right? A, a musician can now uh, essentially solo make recordings and have the equipment to record, to master, to process, and then to distribute their work via the internet. That's amazing uh, for practicing musicians, as well as for people who, who love to sort of uh, hear new music and support uh, up and coming musicians, that is an astonishing place to be. One thing that we hear an awful lot in the debate is the idea of as, as the artist meant it to be heard or meant it to be seen. Um, does that mean that we're looking at the extent to the point where the album, the recorded work is a loss leader to get people into gigs to feel a, a human connection? I remember when that argument started, uh, because again, I'm old enough to remember Napster and, you know, one of the admittedly somewhat weak, I think, rationalizations was, well, this will be good for artists because even if people are not paying for their music online, uh, it will stimulate interest in going to hear their live performances. I don't know how true that's turned out to be, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, when we talk about the way the artist meant it to be heard, again, there's the artist sitting in the room uh, in a small pub, maybe like last night, as I was, there's the artist sitting in a concert hall because they've now attracted a much larger crowd. There's the artist in a recording studio creating something that is going to be captured as a sort of permanent uh, record of their work. All three of those are what the artist meant to be heard. So, you know, it's not as if uh, because there are certain bands whose concerts I've attended uh, I don't think I'm going to say, well, those concerts are so good that I'm no longer going to listen to the recordings. It's just not good enough for me. It's a different experience. And on the contrary, there are actually some bands for which, at least in my subjective opinion, I prefer the recordings. You know, if I think, you know, going back to the 80s and 90s when I was in university and, you know, uh, Erasure and New Order, some of these sort of early new wave bands, that uh, their sound was a very sort of processed electronic sound. And at the time, that was quite novel. And the truth is that that sound relies on the heavy processing that is really only available in a stereo, uh, in a, uh, that kind of sound really relies on the processing that's only available in a studio type of environment. They gave live concerts, but in some senses, the live concerts were almost a bit of a letdown. You know, the, the energy of being at a concert with a lot of people was certainly exciting, but in terms of what you were listening to, you'd have to say in many cases, the studio version was more compelling because what they meant to be heard was a kind of sound that couldn't be reproduced live terribly well, but worked very well in a studio. So again, I think it's a great example of how technology has enabled new kinds of art to be created. And it is no longer, you know, I said the recording, uh, the sound recording began as uh, sort of a, a poor substitute for being unable to go to the concert hall. But that's not what it is today. You know, there's a lot of sound that is really meant to be listened to only in recorded form the way that it was created. It's sort of not designed for live and in-person consumption in the same way. And I think one could say the same thing about art. A lot of art, uh, you know, photography. Let me rewind. I think one could say something similar about the movies. Uh, if you, you know, if you go back and look at the, the earliest uses of the movie camera, the, some of the earliest surviving footage uh, from the Lumiere brothers or from Georges Méliès is really pointing a camera at a static scene and capturing what was happening. It was in some sense a poor substitute for you being there as a spectator at that static scene. 
But of course, you know, now cinematography has sort of become its own craft, changing the camera angles and using lighting. And, you know, it's developed from a substitute for a particular kind of experience to an enabler of entirely new experiences that were not possible before. Um, and I, you know, as a patron of the arts, I think I appreciate that aspect as well. Let's look at sort of the competitive element of formats. A couple of years ago, we had what they call the loudness wars uh, in radio, where formats were in, intentionally manipulated to make everything sound as loud as possible. Uh, do you think this might be something we'll see again in the future, where sort of that, that customer experience might be uh, sacrificed at the ex- uh, in favour of, you know, better radio airplay or something like that? I can absolutely imagine something like that happening. Um, And again, I think it's telling that we talk about uh, processing the sound to make it sound as loud as possible. I mean, without getting into sort of the psychoacoustics of what that means, it is a reminder that any reproduction of music that is not live is mediated. And uh, in some cases, you know, even if the radio station didn't try to alter the signal in any way, the signal is being altered by virtue of the fact that the components it has to pass through before it reaches your car speakers, uh, all, all of those introduce some amount of distortion to the original signal. So really, you could say, well, they're just introducing an additional kind of distortion that they can control more carefully and that they're trying to control it in order to achieve a specific effect in the listener. Now, when Beethoven wrote a symphony, when he chose to you know, feature the horns in a certain section or the trumpets in another, he was also manipulating the musical signal in order to, to get a reaction out of the listener uh, or what he thought would be a reaction out of the listener. You know, I'm not saying that Beethoven's goals were, were the same or comparable to those of, of the radio station, but I think it's important to remember that, that everything that we consume as media is a mediated experience. I mean, there's a reason those two words are related, but again, as a consumer, we're in a position to uh, have a more detailed conversation in some sense with the people who are doing that mediation and ask, well, what is it that's being done? Is this something that's coming from the intent of the original artist? Is it coming from the intent of the the entity that is disseminating and making the content available to me? And if so, what are they trying to achieve? Maybe they're trying to surprise me. Maybe there's a, a aesthetic or pleasurable element to playing back a song slowed down or playing it backwards or something. And maybe what they're trying to do is get me to pay more attention because they, in the end, want to sell me more of some widget and they want my advertising money. And that's not in and of itself evil. It's just something that is worth thinking about because it didn't used to be possible as readily. And because it's now possible, again, as, a, as the listening public, we need to sort of ask ourselves, you know, am I on board with what the intentions are? And, uh, and am I willing to make that trade-off in return for the convenience I'm getting uh, of the listening experience? Let's stop, step backwards from the argument for art for a second and look at, I suppose, the more mundane uh, uses for formats that we're seeing today. In particular, uh, we were talking before about how people use their uh, phones as mirrors. Um, how do you think the evolution of new formats is going to affect our behaviours in much simpler ways than perhaps we, we expect they do right now? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think in some sense it comes down to when an activity becomes sufficiently convenient and inexpensive, in some sense we begin to take it for granted. And that was sort of the basis of my, my observation the first time I saw someone use their mobile phone selfie camera to use their phone as a, a mirror to check their makeup. 
And I thought, wow, the, the amount of technological ingenuity and progress that is implied by someone doing that act. And yet they do it so nonchalantly because they, they have come to take for granted that this is an affordable technology to, at least in the developed world. And that, you know, what, I mean, a mirror could break on you and why carry an extra mirror when you know, you'll have your phone with you all the time. So I think as, as media formats make it easier and easier to create and disseminate things like video and audio, we'll probably just start to see it everywhere. Uh, you know, I think if you look at going back as far as the mid 1980s to movies like Blade Runner, where uh, billboards are heavily animated, you know, it's, it's basically what we would now recognize as LED billboards, which are ubiquitous in large cities. If you go to the West End or to Times Square, the animated billboards are everywhere. It's easy to forget that at the time that movie was made, that was much less common. Um, and so, you know, sort of envisioning a future in which we're saturated or, or bombarded, I guess, with media uh, because it is so ubiquitous and because there is no cost to doing it because the the way the psychological effect of moving video or of, of surprises in audio are well studied. And, you know, as you mentioned in your example with the radio loudness wars can be used as cues to get your attention, usually to get you to do something or to change your behavior. So maybe that would be my summary, you know, um, as a species, we've always sort of been, you know, we make music, we tell stories, we make pictures. That's, that seems to be wired into our DNA and it has a deep connection to our psyche. And it has, you know, there are well-known effects of, you know, if you watch a scary movie or if you listen to a, a, a romantic piece and it evokes something, those reactions can also be manipulated. And it's now become inexpensive and convenient enough to create and disseminate on demand uh, the content designed to do that. And not just the content in general, but, you know, the content for Niall or the content for Armando, like they, you know, if you know enough about me, you know, what kinds of music or, or scenes or photographs I respond to in different ways. And you can cue your, and you can craft your behavioral cues to me if you want me to react a certain way by choosing that content appropriately. And these days you could probably manufacture the content on demand and have it in front of me in seconds. So, uh, I do wonder, by the way, if um, I think not, you know, Ireland is, has always had a very strong sort of trad music and, you know, let's go to the pub and and just get together and, and play songs. I love that. I wish I wish we had more of that culture in the U.S., to be frank. But I think even in the U.S., there is kind of a, um, you know, a retrenchment towards simpler music, towards a less processed sound, towards more acoustic, towards more live performance. And I wonder whether part of it is is sort of our reaction to being bombarded with media that we sort of psychologically feel like we need to take a step back and, and get back to the roots of what that experience was and what it is about it that we value. Because it's, you know, it's sort of if you pour too much chocolate syrup over the top of the ice cream, after a while, you can't taste the ice cream anymore. And maybe sort of a possibly negative side effect of the inexpensive, convenient media formats is there. there's too much media in some sense. And, and we're losing touch a little bit with what made that experience so important and special to begin with. That was Armando Fox chatting with Niall Kitson. You can read more from Armando and his thoughts on RetroTech on his own website, which is armandofox.com. And that website in the show notes for you, as always. That's it for our show for this week. Do remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or, of course, you can listen to us each week online or Fridays with RTE Radio and Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thank you so much for listening. Talk soon.
Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.